You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 2nd of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. U.S. President Joe Biden continues the search for the least worst option in the Middle East. France and Spain insult each other's tomatoes and the eight-month interrogation of a pigeon. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who crashed out of this afternoon's game of Monopoly first were Claudia Jacob, Chris Chermack and Chris Lord. They'll discuss the day's big stories, we'll look at whether it is worth adopting the new Apple headset early, and we'll hear from the last dinner party on the release of their debut album. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined from the newsroom upstairs by Monocle's Claudia Jacob and Chris Chermack. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, Claudia, it has been production week on the magazine. I was just wondering at the top of the show if you could enlighten our listeners as to what that's like. I mean, I've got some idea because I am here for some of it, but I don't think it's quite as... Well, I mean, by production week, I've usually done all the stuff I'm doing for the magazine. (laughs) So apart from a couple of querulous emails from fact checkers, I'm fine. But what is it like for you? Well, this week I've had uh, an email from a fact checker saying that she can't verify one of the sources and we've had to change a few last minute things and slot in some last minute stories. Um, So it's always a good time for the art team who are frantically rearranging pages and the subs who are cutting bits of copy out. But yeah, that's just part of the fun. Uh, I think it is important to stress to listeners who are also readers that we do actually have still sub editors and fact checkers, which a lot of journals around the world have dispensed with. And Chris, I I am quite cheerful willing to admit to willing to admit I could say two syllable words at the start of this week I'm willing to admit that and on more than one occasion monocles fine sub editors and or fact checkers have spared me uh, embarrassment of putting an absolute clanger in print next to my byline well, I, I actually fact-checked myself for this issue. Does that, that, does that goes, count? That I sort always of caught goes a few well. things. <laughs> <laughs> in a story that I have in the March issue, I caught some things reading it afterwards that I had not checked when I first wrote it, which was also slightly embarrassing. But, you know, I sent to our fact-checkers my own fact-check, and he can then fact-check on top of my fact-check. So that's that's quite a good extra layer, I would say, of, of fact-checking to go for this story. <laughs> um, we should also stress to listeners, Chris, that you are, in fact, back properly, and you, you have, in fact, been unpacking to prove it. I am back. I have moved into a new place in London. I have been unpacking boxes and figuring out which things I stupidly threw away from the last time I was in London and I now need to buy again, so that'll be part of my weekend, yes. Uh, Chris and Claudia, thank you for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. But first, it is now more than five days since three American soldiers were killed and dozens more injured in a drone strike on a US base in Jordan, presumably carried out by Iraq-based military 
militants sympathetic to Iran. It is more than three days since US President Joe Biden announced that he had decided upon America's response. As of this broadcast, however, the blow has not fallen. Reports suggest that the White House is still attempting to balance a number of competing concerns, not least the worry that any strike against Iranian assets might jeopardise negotiations over American hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. Well, I'm joined with more on this by Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord. Um, Chris, from where you are sitting, how much pressure is Joe Biden under to act or perhaps more accurately to be seen to be acting? I think he's under profound pressure, um, not least because we're in an election year. There is those big voices in this country who say that this is uh, that what happened last weekend where we saw uh, multiple American service members be killed in this drone strike, that this is a, a consequence of uh, Joe Biden's sort of what they call cowardice or, or their, his inability to keep a hold on what's happening in the Middle East. I think there is a great uh, pressure for him to be robust in this response. And I don't think that we're just going to see one uh, surgical strike. I think there's going to be multiple uh, targets that they're hashing over in the Pentagon, of course, you know, they're not beyond going after some of the military leaders of Iran who operate overseas. We've seen that before with Qasem Soleimani. Um, I think this is going to be big. I think this is going to be big and theatrical because I think it needs to be theatrical. I think what's happened, if I really, if we really look at what happened last weekend, I think that the some of the scales fell from from Joe Biden's eyes about the Middle East. I think that, you know, firstly, since the war between Israel and Gaza kicked off in uh, after October 7th, America's really tried to do everything to contain that war within Gaza itself and within Israel itself. And I think that that was really wasn't really facing the reality, which is that, you know, ever since for months now, there have been these sort of drip drip of attacks, most of them thwarted on U.S. presence around the Middle East, in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, elsewhere. I think what happened last weekend really sort of revealed that that containment has completely failed. And I think that we're probably on on the brink of seeing Joe Biden have to really remake his whole strategy and approach when it comes to the Middle East and actually put some of his own sort of ideas about the way the world works, uh, put them to bed and and, and really rethink things. And I think we're going to see that happen in the next few weeks. I think the Iran that he's realized that the Iran that we're dealing with today is simply not the Iran that was there when he was vice president to Barack Obama. And similarly, the, the Saudis and all the other allies that America has in the region are also not quite on the same page as they were back then. It's important to stress, of course, that this attack on Jordan was very far from the first such incident uh, in recent Mm. months. There's been dozens, in fact, by some counts, more than 100 attacks on various American assets spread throughout Iraq, Syria and Jordan. How big a story in the United States has the events prior to this most recent and deadliest attack? How big a story has that been? It's simply not been a story. And I think that's been part of the problem here. I think that, you know, a lot of Americans, first of all, would almost very few would know that American troops were still in Iraq and Syria with the kind of presence that they are, certainly Syria with the, you know, they're there with the, uh, you know, with the stated purpose of, of battling the remnants of Islamic State. But I think most Americans would simply not know they were there. Uh, similarly, I think that the the drip drip of attacks that we've seen um, really, again, you know, Americans simply just many just weren't aware of it. I think some of that is to do with the fact that 
Ukraine has so uh, has sucked up so much of the oxygen in terms of American foreign engagement and what's happening and sort of balance of power in the world that I think a lot of people simply miss that. Um, but also, I think that getting access to these places for journalists has become extremely difficult. The, the Pentagon is very carefully controlling uh, that narrative, I think, and, and how much it's, it's sort of put out is quite limited, actually. If you look in, in the last few months of those base attacks and these sort of drone attacks and so on, it's actually quite limited how much is out there. And I think that is part of an information war. They've want, not wanted to to show that there is a sort of threat building up here uh, that America, in some respects, is is a little bit uh, is a little bit on the back foot from in as much as there is just a constant drip drip of these attacks and, and the growth of this sort of crescent of Iranian influence through the region. But I think that's, as I say, I think the scales are coming off. And I think that what's, you know, the the, the joint strikes between the UK and US on uh, the Houthis was a, was a major moment, I think, because I think, again, as I said before, I think there's a moment here where uh, the narrative about the Middle East and what's happening there and how the kind of conflict that we're seeing in, in Israel and Gaza can be brought to task. I think there is a growing need now for, for recognizing the Pentagon and elsewhere to tell that story to, to the U.S. public that actually, for, you know, that some of the, the atrocity that's gone on in recent months, uh, so much of it can be can be brought back to some of the puppet strings being held by uh, sort of senior leaders in Iran. And they're going to have to make that case because I think when we see the first strikes and the first responses to what happened last weekend, uh, you know, we're in an election year. Starting up conflicts is not something any sitting president wants to do. Well, indeed not. And just finally and briefly, if you could, Chris, on that subject, as and when the United States strikes, can the president count on full-throated bipartisan support from across the aisle, the Republican Party recognising that great national interests are in play, or will this just be turned into yet another inane culture war bun fight? It depends how far he goes, really, because if you read and listen to some of the, the discourse around this, I mean, Lindsey Graham is you know couldn't be more... Uh, aching to 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 send some rockets or sort of Tehran's way. I mean, you know, he he's specifically said just just a couple of days ago that that America will be uh, at war with Iran in 2024 in some capacity that they should strike Iranian oil uh, facilities within the country. Uh, there's going to be a lot of table banging, and across the Republican Party, you know, people will use this, of course, to say that whatever is done is not enough. And I think that. Uh, Donald Trump, you know, of course, you know, he's firing off all kinds of missives about how this is a consequence of Biden's weakness and surrender and all this kind of thing. So there's going to be there's going to be, I think, whatever he does here, there's going to be criticism. I think within the Democrats itself, I think that there is the Democratic Party. I think there is a, a, a constant recognition for a need for proportionality, because I think lots of people, rightly so, fear uh, that. America dipping its toe too far, going too far, getting too embroiled in this can only accelerate what is an extremely fertile situation. But, uh, you know, everything has to be viewed through the road to to the election in November. And I think that, you know, whatever Biden does here, he is going to get backlash. He's going to get pushed. He's going to say that he's not go far enough or too far in some cases from within his own party. Uh, And I think that the most pressing thing for him right now is a is a that he needs to make clear what his policy is towards the Middle East, from Israel to Iran to Saudi Arabia, and really rethink it and start messaging that. So he looks like there is a plan in place and is not just a reactive president.
Chris Lord, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily and we'll bring our panel back in now, Claudia Jacob and Chris Chermak, and ponder what future generations may recall as the opening rhetorical salvos of the Franco-Spanish Tomato War of 2024. Earlier this week, former French Environment Minister Ségolène Royal advocated for separate identification of French produce on supermarket shelves across Europe, in no small part to differentiate French tomatoes from their Spanish rivals which, Royal harumphed, possibly with a big shrug, were uneatable. By way of retaliation, Spain's Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez said that his country's tomatoes were the best in the world. So there, uh, before we crack on here, does anybody want to express an opinion vis-à-vis the relative merits of French or Spanish tomatoes? I will confess, I, I don't really have a dog in this fight. I have sampled tomatoes and tomato-based dishes in both countries. Fine, I thought. Can I offer a slightly controversial opinion? That please, I don't, Chris, I, please. I don't actually like tomatoes particularly. Oh, my God. So... <laughs> That's that's one way of saying I don't either. I don't really have a horse in this fight either. But I just a horse I feel in like this I'm, fight. Oh, <laughs> race. Thank you very much. I'm you know following from you know. Okay. Um, race. Thank you. That's the one I was looking yeah. for. Horse in this race. I do not have a horse in this race. I'd be uh, curious to watch a horse fight though. I that that would be fun. Yeah. I would look forward <laughs> to that. But yeah. So I don't have a particular opinion except I feel like I'm having a you know George H W Bush moment. I hate broccoli and cue cue all the critics who say tomatoes are healthy and. How dare you say that you don't like tomatoes? Uh, Representatives of the governments of both France and Spain should contact Chris directly. His (laughs) views are not representative of Monocle as an organisation. Claudia, do you you have any thoughts or feelings either way on this? I mean, I love tomatoes, I must admit. Anything tomato-based I'm happy with, but I feel the Mediterranean countries are maybe blessed with sunshine that we're not really blessed with here you Are you picking Spain's side? I'm I'm purely on a UK versus Mediterranean side here. I think they're blessed with sunshine that we're not blessed. Um, so, so you're um, <laughs> you're ru- you're rubbishing your I'm, own I'm country's tomatoes. <laughs> are you some sort of communist? I mean, <laughs> I mean, our tomatoes are all imported from there anyway, so you know, they they do have the best. Um, Chris, what do you make of the the potential diplomatic ramifications of this? Uh, Pedro Sanchez has challenged Segaline Royale to come to Spain and try Spanish tomatoes for herself. I, I, I mean, a huge potential diplomatic route, considering how she's already spoken about those Spanish tomatoes. So you know what's going to happen when she gets there. I find it just interesting in general, frankly, that these two are fighting so openly. Normally, everyone agrees that Brussels is at fault with everything. And mm. let's just sort of go from there. The fact that France and Spain are going at it in such a direct way over the quality of tomatoes, the environmental regulations, which is also particularly interesting, Spain using pesticides, how dare they, and so on and so forth. And that's that's sort of where this comes from. But that's usually something that is that kind of language is usually reserved for Brussels. So we're kind of. We're seeing the European Union come apart at the seams here over tomatoes. Uh, Claudia, there is a more serious subtext to this in some respects, which are these huge protests we are seeing by farmers across the EU. Before we discuss their actual grievances, what have you made of the optics of the demonstrations? I mean, it does it does catch the eye, but I, I wonder whether, whether a spectacle like large numbers of tractors being driven into uh, the capitals of Europe rather... A includes anybody understanding what their problem actually is. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's been, you know, some pretty big scenes seeing these tractors blocking, you know, the way and threatening to put a siege on Paris. It's been causing a lot of chaos recently. Um, and, yeah, I think it's interesting to see how... Um, you know, farmers are looking at this from point of view of, you know, they they want their, you know, crops to succeed. I mean, uh, fresh fruit, vegetables are, you know, something that they're very proud of. And in Spain as well, you know, tomatoes are a massive part of the culture. They have like a big tomato festival near Valencia every year. And um, it just shows how divisive something can be, which, you know, we might think of tomatoes as something insignificant. But, you know, for Mediterranean countries where they grow their own produce, it's a big deal. Uh, and just finally on this, Chris, for, for wider context still, this was the week that the EU EU did uh, finally agree this 50 billion euro um, guarantee of funding for Ukraine over the next four years. But part of the reason the farmers are upset is, of course, Ukraine related in that it was made easier for Ukraine to sell its goods across Europe after Russia attacked it uh, nearly two years ago. Is this the kind of thing that could potentially undermine public support for Ukraine or does this basically just upset farmers and not really anybody else? I don't know if it necessarily undermines public support, but it it does show, I think, that we've just kind of moved on to a new phase when it comes to the debate about Ukraine. I think, you know, obviously when all of this started, there was an extreme amount of support from all quarters and any quarrels, any any debates, sort of internal debates and, and criticisms that we had were kind of kept you know, kept by the wayside. Mm. We weren't really talking about them. And I think we're just seeing more and more, obviously, in the last few months, whether it's the question of funding in general, of course, with the US still not agreeing to funding for Ukraine and so on and so forth. Everyone is kind of now saying, yes, you know, support for Ukraine is fine and all, but the impact that is it is having on us is something that needs to be taken into account as well. And that's something I think that has come strongly to the, to the fore over the last six months, year or so, and we're going to see even more in 2024. And that gets to these farmers who are particularly, of course, upset, yes, about Ukraine's agricultural goods coming into the EU quota-free, sort of they're getting, they're getting a lot of... Uh, cheap cheap goods coming in basically from Ukraine. And so that's why they're pushing for, you know, either stop the goods coming in from Ukraine or give us the subsidies that we want in order for, you know, in order for us to compete with that. Well, let's move along slightly because among the many reasons that French authorities are somewhat angsty about the spectacle of angry farmers revving tractors on the boulevards of Paris is that it is just 181 days until the opening ceremony of the Paris Olympics. And unless a way can be found to style out the parades of agricultural machinery as some sort of exhibition sport, there will be concerns that visitors might be deterred. Other worries revolve around staffing. Thousands of Olympic-related jobs remain unfilled, very much including security guards. In a possibly related development, police are being offered a bonus for working during the Games. Um, has, has anybody here ever worked in a temporary staffing role at any kind of major event? I I have not, to the best of my recollections. I don't think school events count. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't. I have friends who have done security at Wimbledon Tennis, um, and I'm told it's a pretty rigorous... 
rigorous job. But that's no, that's not that's not the rowdiest of crowds. No, though, it's not it? quite <laughs> the same scale as the. I mean, you, what what goes on there? A punch up at the strawberry tent, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, it all gets a bit out of hand on Henman Hill. Yeah, exactly. I, I wish I could say I orchestrated something at Wimbledon. <laughs> I have been there, but I I can't. Um, would either of you be tempted to work as a security guard during the Olympics? I don't know how how good your French is, but of course, in the grand French tradition, most their security guards will pretend they can't speak French or whatever, or whatever language it is they think the person they're addressing does speak. Uh, I, I could be tempted. I don't know about security guard. I would maybe do some, some other kind of job at the Olympics. I mean, I'm a huge fan, and it would be, it would be nice to get there. I frankly have no, no not no understanding, but l- little understanding of why this is always such a controversy when it comes to hosting the Olympics in different places. I mean, I personally would love for it to be in, in one. I've never been, I've never lived in a city at a time where the Olympics was being hosted. I get the whole traffic thing, but at the same time, it's such a special event. Why is this always such a problem to have a once-in-a-lifetime event in your city? Well, th- this is the thing I wonder about, Claudia, because I, I have only lived in one Olympic city when there was an Olympic Games on, and it was this one in 2012. And I well remember a similar build-up in that everybody in London was convinced the whole thing would be a disaster, it would be a shambles, nothing would work. People were talking about just getting out of the city and avoiding the entire thing. And I don't think I recall, can recall a time in the entire a time I've lived here where everything ran so smoothly. And I live two stops away from the Olympic venues on the tube, but I travelled through Stratford every day. It was fine. Um, Do you think what Paris is going through is just that standard pre-Olympic angst and it will all be fine? I think so. I mean, I think it's fairly normal for people to worry about transport systems and security and the like. But I mean, there are some genuine issues which potentially haven't been addressed just yet. I mean, um, uh, there have been a lot of uh, strikes from police officers who've been threatening to... um, essentially to go on strike um, because of not being paid enough bonus while they're working during the Olympics. Um, they're not going to be able to take any holiday and they're, um, it's going to be quite chaotic in the centre. Um, and so the Minister of the Interior did um, offer them a, a bonus of up to €1,900 for the um, duration of the Games. So I think they're trying to placate them in some ways, which is very important because, you know, security is going to be one of the main problems. But um, And avoiding strikes, surely, is absolutely yeah, crucial. Yeah, it's the one time where they really can't afford to have a strike. <laughs> Uh, and well, this is—I I do wonder about this, Chris. Is that surely of all countries, the French will have seen this coming? These famously, these are not a people who require much in the way of incentive, encouragement, or provocation before downing tools and heading out into the streets to throw cafe tables at the gendarmes. <laughs> and, and obviously, a looming Olympic Games does give people considerable leverage. Well, absolutely, and wh- whether it's throwing anything at the gendarmes or just not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> think would would be the key question and I, it is going to be interesting I think to be fair from that perspective because you just don't know right you just you don't know which group might come forward towards the end when the Olympics are about to start and say we're going on strike unless our demands are met the sanitation workers the farmers again obviously the police it, it could be anybody so there's only <laughs> the so Olympic much team the Olympic... <laughs> <laughs> so that must be I can imagine that's the part that is yeah. that is kind of everyone where the head comes from because it's just 
How do you know? (laughs) Well, to India now, where police have released a suspected Chinese spy pigeon which had been held for eight months. Let's get all of this out of the way quickly. The bird had been suspected of foul play, possibly even of plotting a coup, was up before the beak assessed as a flight risk. Apologies if we missed anything. The bird was captured in Mumbai last May. Local plod concerned about rings tied to its legs. It has now been determined that the pigeon was not not, in fact, conducting espionage on behalf of Beijing, but was a racing pigeon from Taiwan which had got lost. Or at least that was its story, Claudia. Um, uh, How do we imagine the questioning went in the eight months they have held this creature? I don't think pigeons give much back when you um, interrogate them, so, you know, quite (laughs) slow going. (laughs) Have you tried? (laughs) I haven't tried, um, (laughs) but no, I doubt doubt there was much to and fro. I, I'm I'm quite mesmerised by this story, Chris. I, I, yeah. I literally understand nothing about it. I don't understand how any of this could possibly have happened. Well, in part, I don't understand the length, because to your point about the interrogation, I mean, as I understand it, basically, they realised, you know, that they that this pigeon had two rings tied to its legs. Mm. You'd think once they realised that and took those rings off, <laughs> at that point, the interrogation can stop. Or are you then asking the pigeon, you know, is there anything <laughs> else? Where else do you have your spy material that you are keeping? Perhaps they were trying to turn it. Perhaps they were, they were, they were trying to engage, <laughs> Send it, it, back engage, it, engage it as a double agent. <laughs> that um, would be but, amazing. But, but there is, Claudia, there is quite a history of animals either being engaged in espionage or people thinking they had. This, this is true. Iran, uh, in 2007, arrested 14 squirrels uh, near a nuclear enrichment plant which they believed were working for Mossad. Yeah, apparently there is quite a history of had of sea lions, squirrels, dolphins, lizards. I've read all sorts of things. Um, I mean, I think you know they, I guess, make quite subtle spies, if you want to call them that. Um, you know, they can crawl in small spaces, um, but you know, it's a very curious thing that's going on right now. People trying to smuggle in these messages, or also people think. Um, so yeah. Do, do you have a favourite spy animal, Chris? Oh, I have. I have a good one for you. Go on. It is. It is Groundhog Day. As, it is as, today. As today, know, is today is literally is that. Groundhog Day. Punxsutawney Phil has not seen a shadow, which means that we can expect an early spring, which Excellent. is good news for everybody. I would just though like to highlight a tweet from a guy called Dan Chibnell, who clearly has everything, you know, his sources all correct on this. Hi, hi Dan, if you're listening. Weird we found out about the Chinese spy balloon on Groundhog Day. Punxsutawney Phil knew. He knew. So there you go. That's, I think a, that's this, a throwback to last year's <laughs> Chinese spy balloon this thing. This is a throwback to last year's Chinese spy balloon. Does, does, maybe Punxsutawney Phil knows when the next spy balloons will be coming or when the invasion is taking place of Taiwan or any any other, perhaps, question related to China that we would like to ask him about. Well, on that sobering thought, Chris Chermak and Claudia Jacob, thank you both very much for joining us. You're listening to The Monocle Daily with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined now by Monocle's technology correspondent, David Phelan, who tried Apple's new Vision Pro headset before you did. Um, David, this thing is now generally available, at least to people who can afford it, but you had a go on it some months ago. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? 
Yeah, certainly. Yeah, this was back in June uh, when they first announced it and they let a, a small number of people try it. I'm happy to say I was the first. And it was a pretty remarkable experience. It Basically, it's a headset. It goes over your eyes like like other headsets. Uh, Xbox has something similar. Um, so does PlayStation and, and indeed Facebook. But this is a whole other level. It, it covers your eyes and you just look into these two very high resolution tiny screens in front of you and it's very very immersive um, there are lots of things it can do one of the big things that apple is pushing is that it's the first step into spatial computing as they're calling it so that instead of having a laptop or a computer in front of you you have the headset on and it is as powerful as a mac computer and you're looking at virtual um, computer screens in front of you. And so instead of just having one, you can have two or three or more. Um, it's also good for watching video. Uh, there are games that you can play on it. And uh, there's a thing called spatial video. And this is amazing. You can record these videos on the front of the headset because it's got two cameras looking outwards. And it records video in 3D. When you play these back on the headset, they are so um, immediate that it becomes quite uh, emotional to watch them. Uh, it does a lot of other things, but as you say, it does cost a lot of money. Uh, we will come to that. I mean, obviously, this thing is incredibly clever, but how actually practical is it? Do you see it becoming as transformative a product line as, say, the initial iPod or the initial iPhone? Will, be, will it become as ubiquitous as those things at their peaks? I think could do, but it's going to take many generations and many years. It's obviously, um, we've just talked about the price, it's got to get cheaper, but also people who've tried it for longer than I have, I've only tried it for half an hour, say that after a, a long period of wearing it, it gets heavy and future generations of it will doubtless be lighter. It has a separate battery pack. One day they'll be able to make it so power efficient that that'll be built in. One day I imagine the idea will be that it'll be much more like the um, ill-fated Google Glass where it'll be a much lighter um, pad. But I don't think Apple is going for that. They love the immersive quality. And I think I hear what the subtext of your question, Andrew, because it's an amazing thing, but does anyone need it? And I, I was very sceptical before I tried it. I thought this is a, this is a, a, a solution looking for a problem. And it, when I had tried it, I could see that there was enough versatility and capability here that people could try it. But if we measure it against what the the universe of Apple gadgetry can already do, um, you know, formidable though that is, maybe not this first generation headset, but future generations of it, what would it enable us to do that we can't already with a laptop and a phone? No, well, that's a, yeah, that's a really good question. I think you, the same question was raised when the Apple Watch was launched. People said, why do you want a tiny computer on your wrist? I've got a, a phone, I've got a tablet, I've got a laptop, and they all do different things. You, you wouldn't type a novel on an Apple Watch, um, but you might on, on a, a laptop. Uh, and similarly, this works as another way of, of doing things. And in some ways, certainly if you're watching a movie, uh, it can be quite overwhelming, the, the effect of it, in a way that just sitting watching a movie on a laptop or a big bigger screen um, is perhaps less 
effective. But I, I agree, I don't think it's going to replace anything, although Apple may want it to replace things further down the line. But at this stage, it sits as a new way of doing things that is complementary to what you've already got. And just finally, David, would you at this stage recommend that people belt out the three and a half thousand US dollars or thereabouts that these things are retailing for? Well, it's a tricky one. It is amazing, but it is very expensive. I I actually think it's good value because it's got the processing power of a quite decent uh, Mac in it. and the, the, it, it is immaculately built, and everything it does, it does beautifully. But do I think there will be a second-generation version that will be cheaper and uh, lighter and do everything better? Yes, I do. Uh, and, of course, this one's only available in the United States for now. It'll come to the UK later this year, but we don't know when yet. David Phelan, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. And finally, on today's show, an interview with The Last Dinner Party, whose debut album, Prelude to Ecstasy, is out today. The five-piece British band formed in 2021 and surged quickly to popularity after signing with Island Records last year. They have since won multiple awards despite not having an album out, and this they have now fixed. Monocle's Robert Bound spoke to bass player George Davis, guitarist Lizzie Mayland and vocalist Abel. Abigail Morris. It's rare to have five people that can all agree on a a visual, an aesthetic style and a musical style. There's a lot of styles going on Mm -hmm. in in The Last Dinner Party. Did that all kind of click in the early days? That all just kind of click with the the live stuff, then the studio stuff? You're obviously all mates and you hang together wonderfully as an interview. (laughs) But stuff clicking is rare amongst kind of a songwriting partnership of two people or or whatever else. So that is a wonderful plate to keep spinning. How does that, yeah. Did that just happen sort of early doors and it became an inevitability? I think, especially with the style, but also with the music, I guess, you can extend this too. It's like, it's style, not a uniform. Mm. So like everyone within the kind of band has the freedom to express their own individuality within the kind of overarching aesthetic that we set out to do. So, like, you I'd can like play... to point out, ladies and gentlemen, she's reading this off her pre pre Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm joking. I, like, rustling. I just... Yeah. <laughs> like, so it's, sorry, not, yeah. it's not uniform. We're not, like, we're not, all it's in... It's not a benevolent... Boiler suits or, you know, like, something that's, yeah. like, very difficult to distinguish us from each other. Like, within that, we each have our own very unique and individual styles. We kind of play with different gender representations mm. and... and we can combine like a Victorian corset with a glam rock thing and they can both work on the same stage yeah. equally with Baroque elements and music combined with like a dad rock guitar solo. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's stylistic <laughs> but not not um, committed to uniformity at all. It's actually yeah. much more freeing than that because within this band, musically and aesthetically, you can combine anything and it just somehow works. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's funny that. <laughs> yeah. I think also because from the beginning, like we, when we were thinking about uh, what we'd be as a five piece, the idea was sort of like, you know, almost it, the the story of the band is almost having five distinct characters, you know, and we're not we're not we're not we're not putting on an act, and it's not like you mm. know the Spice Girls, but it's sort of like the idea was sort of you know you could have a favorite, you know, because we're all. 
different, mm. but you know, coexisting together, and it's sort of no one is. Uh, there's no hierarchy, yeah. and it's just sort yeah. of like five individual characters that are sort of yeah existing symbiotically. Mm. I like it. Symbiotically. <laughs> Your instruments are great. People have obviously drawn attention to the flying V guitar. Mm. Your like the keyboard guitar thing. <laughs> yeah. What's that called? A guitar. I wish it had a more it's real like, Nabokovian word. Yeah. They might. They might edit that to make it look like I knew what I was talking about. I'm to say guitar with confidence. And then oh, you mean a guitar? Yeah. Oh, interesting. There you go. Guitar. Have that for free. Start calling it that. Um, that's that must be fun picking out those instruments, right? I mean, that, everyone wants to play a flying V, don't they? <laughs> You've got to have the skills. You've got to yeah. have the, the the vibe as well. Like mm. I feel like a lot of people don't have the the confidence because they're not. It's not cool. It's not trendy to play a flying V. Yeah. it's like it is now. But Emily you know, puts it on. Now. It is yeah. now. Emily just... Big Balls Roberts. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. she's knocked it out of the park. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you can't really sit in front of a Steinway and do chopsticks, can you? No, you have yeah, to be. You, you have to have. You got to meet it off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I hope people can pick out the noise that the keytar makes in Lady of Mercy. Oh, yeah. Okay. Do you want to make it for us, Lizzie? No, so no, 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 that's that's a, no, no, that's okay. Well, how are they going to know what it um, sounds Well, it's just, it's yeah, gnarly. Yeah, let's hum it. Just, just, yeah, I can't <laughs> even. <laughs> All right, okay, no, yeah, I guess you can. It's like an engine rev. Yeah. yeah, literally. If you listen to the Lady of Mercy track and find the, like, try and hear the most gnarly sounds, that's what the keytar's doing. It's a game for the listeners at home. <laughs> yeah. In this, as we've discussed, it's got such, there is such a lot in this record. The loud and quiet, the dynamic, and the, from the pastoral and, and, and the sort of romantic to the properly rock and roll, including, and this was something I underlined, solos. Mm. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, yay. That, <laughs> I feel that from you guys that you just love, love a guitar solo. Yeah. On like a, yeah. kind of, on, well, and why not, right? Fuck Bring it yeah. back. Bring like, it absolutely. Back. When you have the best guitarist in the UK, nay the world, in your <laughs> yeah. band, you're going to whip her out at every opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Also, like some of my favourite things about like you know loving records growing up was like singing along yeah words whatever but then singing every note <laughs> yeah. of a guitar yeah. solo yeah. is actually yeah. so fun no one does it it's like playful to have a guitar solo I feel like people get like people in rock these days get so serious and like oh, no one wants yeah. to do a guitar solo yeah. 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 Like, be less what? serious yeah people. come on have some fun <laughs> listen up boys what are tennis rackets for <laughs> <laughs> That was The Last Dinner Party in conversation with Monocle's Robert Bound. Their debut album, Prelude to Ecstasy, is out now. To hear the full interview, listen to Monocle on Culture this Monday at 2000 London time. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Chris Chermack and Claudia Jacob. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel with editing assistance from Steph Chungu. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. 